listening to Conversations in Atlantic Theory, a podcast dedicated to books and ideas generated from and about the Atlantic world. In collaboration with the Journal of French and Francophone Philosophy, these conversations explore the cultural, political, and philosophical traditions of the Atlantic world, ranging from European critical theory to the Black Atlantic to sites of indigenous resistance and self-articulation as well as the complex geography of thinking between traditions, inside traditions, and from positions of insurgency, critique, and counter-narrative. Today's discussion is with Dr. Derek Scott, a professor of African American Studies at the University of California, Berkeley. His book, Extravagant Objection, Blackness, Power, and Sexuality in the African American Literary Imagination was the winner of the 2011 Alan Bray Memorial Prize for Queer Studies of the Modern Language Association. Scott is also the author of the novels Hex, Traitor to the Race, and the editor of Best Black Gay Erotica. His fiction has appeared in the anthologies Freedom in This Village, Black Like Us, Giant Steps, Shade, and Ancestral House as well as in the erotica collections Flesh and the Word For. He has published essays in Kalalu, GLQ, and the Americas Review, as well as the American Literary History, and is co-editor with Ramzi Fawaz of the American Literature Special Issue, Clear About Comics, which is the winner of the 2018 Best Special Issue from the Council of Editors of Learned Journals. He is also the author of Keeping It Unreal, which was published by the NYU Press in 2022, the occasion of our conversation today. In this discussion, we explore representations of blackness and fantasy-infused genres, such as superhero comic books, erotic comics, fantasy and science fiction genre literature, as well as contemporary literary realist fiction centering fantastic conceits. here today with Dr. Derek Scott. Thank you for joining. Um, so before we get into it, I wanted to start by asking you the origins of the project. So sort of invitation to narrate us into the project, how you came to it, what sort of concerns, personal, ethical, and philosophical that drew you to the questions in keeping it unreal. Mm-hmm. Uh, thank you for inviting me and um, happy to be here on your podcast. Um, well, I guess there are a lot of different ways to answer that question. I think the origins of the project start way back in my life uh, when I was living in what was then West Germany as uh, the son of an uh, army officer. Uh, my family had uh, moved from, I believe it was Georgia or Louisiana, my family's from the South, uh, to Germany to a small town called Fulda, and um, it was an army base there. And you know, I just, I just, my, by 1973, I was going to be turning eight, so I was seven, between seven and eight. And I um, encountered a comic book on the newsstand or on the comic book stand of the American bookstore. And I, I think we made weekly trips to the bookstore, so I had been looking at comics for some time. But there was a particular comic book that grabbed my attention and that was this wonder woman comic book uh that had wonder woman on the cover chained to a sword held by a ghostly figure in the back and on one side she's chained to the sword and she's got her own sword lifted and then on the other side there was a black woman uh who was dressed in this leopard skin skirt or as they drew her uh with these kind of big hoop earrings and this you know uh dark skin, you know, black hair, flying. And then, I, you know, I, it just really arrested me. And I read that comic and I reread a lot of comics over the years many times, but that particular one really grabbed me. And I I read the the, the story in which she appeared, which, which is only three issues. And so this turned out to be the black twin sister of Wonder Woman. So of course I didn't know at the time that Wonder Woman had been around since the 1940s. So, you know, had 30 plus years by that point. Um, and, part of what comic books do, superhero comics, is often retell an origin story and make it different. And the origin story of Wonder Woman is that she was shaped uh, by uh, Queen Hippolyta of the Amazons on Amazon Island, um, where there are only women warriors, and uh, Hippolyta wanted to have a child, so she 
asked the gods and they had her shape this figure from clay, a baby, and then the gods gave that that figure gifts and that became Wonder Woman who has all these powers. So this retroactive retelling of the origin story was that she not only shaped the clay that made Diana, Wonder Woman, she also had some dark clay nearby, uh, which she shaped into this other daughter who also got the same powers and the same blessings from the gods and the Greek gods. And this daughter was called Nubia. And then her memory was wiped of it. Uh, and so this Nubia shows up all these years later, and she's uh, Wonder Woman's twin sister, her black twin sister, who has all the same powers. So the story had all kinds of <laughs> had all kinds of problems. The depiction <laughs> of the character Nubia, even the naming of the character Nubia, has all kinds of problems that are just you know sort of drenched in various kinds of peculiar stereotypes and just anti-blackness. And the fact that she's wearing a leopard skin skirt and she has nothing to do really with any jungle that doesn't come from a jungle that doesn't it's just clearly just a, a kind of way to signify her blackness her wildness you know her difference uh from the white wonder woman and the, the sort of standard uh wonder woman but i was just really entranced by that image and by that story and by this depiction of a powerful black woman that i had not seen anywhere in my childhood consumption of or exposure to popular culture um and uh it really started i had been reading comic books before that really got me interested in them and again and this this figure nubia was there for those three issues and that's it she appeared nowhere else she was not there again at all um, mm. there, until the 1990s there was a different version of her that showed up uh in you know completely different creators and writers and artists uh, but then she was not powered at all. It was just a different Amazon uh, with that name and spelled a bit differently. And then now, just like 50 years later, 50 years after she's, she originally appeared, um, the character has been revived. So it wasn't just me who was interested in it. It was clearly other people for, for half a century who carried this sort of interest in, uh, in that figure, uh, in that superhero comic. So that was where it began for me. And I just, you know, in terms of the writing about this and keeping it unreal i was thinking about what how did it serve me or what were the ways in which reading this comic and seeing this figure um how did it operate on me? what did it do in my consciousness what was it telling me about blackness in an anti-black world what was it giving me as a tool uh, that i was using uh, what was it providing as a lens by which i was seeing that world and i what i theorize and keeping it unreal is that it was making me fantasize uh, and fantasize about blackness as appearing differently than it appears generally or as being represented differently than it usually is represented uh, and also making me see a comparison between a world where you have this black woman who is that powerful and beautiful and able to do all this stuff um, and the world where that doesn't seem to be the case. Um, and so the it just there were a lot of tools that I kind of got from that engagement with that figure in particular, but then superhero comics and superheroes in general, and particularly black superheroes, because at that time you started having a number of black superheroes that had already been the first black superhero from a major superhero comic company, Marvel or DC, uh, Marvel back in 1966 with the Black Panther, who I knew nothing about, but there was a comic that then started with him as the center of it in around the early 70s that I started reading. And there was Luke Cage, uh, Hero for Hire. Um, there was, an, in, on DC, there was a Black Green Lantern who showed up for, you know, who actually had a much longer life and still has a, uh, is present in DC Comics. Um, so there were these Black superheroes who were appearing on the scene. Um, and I, I think I read them all avidly. So there was a, you know, it wasn't like my parents were saying, you need to read some comics that got some black people in it. It was just, you know, <laughs> me seeing it and gravitating towards it. Mm -hmm. The same way I gravitated towards what used to be a magazine. This is way before your time, <laughs> but a magazine called Right On Magazine, Right On with an exclamation point. And uh, it was it was basically a black entertainment magazine. So all the the black uh pop stars and music and the few that were on TV were all featured, you know, in this thing. So I gravitated towards that too, but the superhero comics were a particular kind of 
um, genre that really engaged my interest in fantasy and my thinking, I think I would like to say nimbly uh, and imaginatively about black possibilities uh, and also about the injustices that um, uh, him us in, you know. So there are all kinds of things that uh, that I think came from that. And I I was always interested in, I continued to off and on read comics superhero comics for years like basically it took like a i don't know almost like a 15 year break but i didn't read them pretty much at all but i read other kinds of comics uh and by the time i was in graduate school um the second or third piece that i ever published was on this comic book called love and rockets which is by the brothers hernandez uh jaime and gilberto um these uh chicano uh artists, writers um, from Southern California who were doing this comic that was sprawling and part of it took place, takes place, uh, well, at that time took place uh, in uh, a sort of mythical Mexican Central American town. And part of it took place in LA uh, with these sort of punk girls um, who were uh, Latinx girls. Um, so I was continuing to read comics and the first, you know, first one of the few, the first few pieces that I published was about Love and Rockets. So I started my um, academic career, my scholarship with some interest in comics. And then I went away from it. And I was all about literature, psychoanalytic theory, uh, Fanon, all these things. Um, and then after my first book, I just started going back to comics and uh, started you know, giving talks about comics and various comics and um, publishing pieces on different comics. And then this book came out of that. So. Um, that's kind of the origin of it. It's an it's an intertwining of, I think, as with anything that anybody writes about in a book, intertwining of um, personal, biographical, autobiographical sorts of concerns and um, and and intellectual ones and political ones. Yeah, and I think um, I know I mentioned this to you before we started recording, but the tone. I think that's that's what I can grasp at this point. It would be the tone is it's a mixture of scholarly, but you still have like that comic strip book tone and it it makes it very easy to read. And you before you realize it, you're like, oh, wow, this is this is I wish academia was more like this. <laughs> and then, <laughs> academia, you know, like narrated by uh, comic strips. So like that's that would be that would engage a lot of people. <laughs> Yeah, but yeah. <laughs> um, what, what what was very interesting was number one the title really did captivate me mm -hmm. and I'm like well it's fantasy it's keeping it unreal and then you know you go into mm -hmm. it but something you just mentioned in terms of seeing um the you know seeing the character Nubia when you first did and then imagining different possibilities and it's mm -hmm. it kind of made me think of like es escaping within your escaping vision. Um, and all the mm -hmm. different ways you can escape and the possibilities you can imagine. And mm -hmm. every time I think just there's so many dis interesting discussions around Black Panther, like it could have been like this and it could have been like this. Mm -hmm. And it draws like all these different alternate worlds and realities. Um, and mm -hmm. I wonder if that's kind of like related in terms of all the different ways you can imagine black life and fantasy but it's it's like a double form of escapism yeah so it's interesting i i think that part of it part of what goes on is that there's a structural element of comics and i'm we're talking specifically about superhero comics but comics are a wide thing but comics generally that the form of it is that you have these boxes that have pictures in them and perhaps text and then there's a blank space and then you have another one and you can do all kinds of different you know inventive things with those layouts you got splash pages you can have panels that are behind the panels and all kinds of things but essentially you know it's not a film and it's not uh, a written textual narrative uh, it's a combination of the visual and the textual where the reader has to essentially animate in their own minds the the to animate what happens in the because they're just you know they're still drawings um animate the movement in it imaginatively imagine the connection between them and that's just the process of actually um reading it so to me that it, it's it's a participatory imagination that is required 
Um, and I think in some ways I'm sort of borrowing that term from from Ernst Bloch, you know, uh, participatory illumination or something like that is what he uses, but it's a participatory imagination that happens. Um, and that to me is, it's just a, it means that there's an, it's not a passive process, it's an active process where you're co-creating what it is that you are engaging with. And I think that's always true with no matter what kind of art um, or work that you're engaging with, there's always a participatory imagination. There's just a particular kind of, act, of, of activity that's involved with the mind with superhero comics with unreal things happening in it, right? Uh, and then you providing all these, these connections uh, between what's on the page. And then for me, more than that, um, and Nubia is a great example of this, going beyond the page, that is, there's what is represented there, and it can have all kinds of aspects you don't really particularly like or that are racist or that you sense that and you don't quite know how to name it at the, when it, whatever, depending on when you encounter it. Um, but you can do your own, your own stories with them. You can create your own um, adventures or your own ways that you could have different enemies, different fights that the character can engage in, which I think I did. And it's kind of like, you know, I, I think I had various kinds of um, ways of thinking Nubia taking over the world or you know, taking over the United States and you know, ending racism, things like that, you know, by beating everybody up or whatever she needed to do. However, I thought that could happen, which isn't necessarily realistic, but it was unreal, but that was itself, um, there's something important about that. And I, I say, I use a different word than escape because I think that is generally how we think about fantasy and it is an escape in a certain sense, but it's a creation of mind and here's where we get into the, you know, the more sort of academic and philosophical side, uh, which is that to think about what consciousness is, and this is kind of going from, so for me, like uh, my big theorist that I was going back to is Franz Fanon, but Franz Fanon has a lot of engagements, especially in, in Black Skin, White Masks, uh, and in the early part of his writing uh, with Jean-Paul Sartre, and in fact, a lot of Black Skin, White Masks um, has, um, its arguments are, engagements with retoolings of revisions of Jean Paul Sartre's anti-Semite and the Jew. Um, but the, the whole sort of existential um, uh, existential psychology, existential phenomenology, all those sorts of things are, are informing Fanon's work. And one of Sartre's major th ways of thinking about things is that consciousness is what defines being, um, capital B being, and consciousness is Essentially, it is not a reflection of reality. It's not just an absorption of reality. It's not just the senses uh, bound um, recording of what you see, hear, feel, think, and all that sort of stuff. It's it's a kind of withdrawal from reality into your own interpretation, uh, into what you've been taught, into kind of structures that you create to make sense of things. So it's, as he puts it, you know, there's a fancy word for it, or at least in the English translation, is annihilation of reality, like it's a removal. Um, so in some ways, consciousness is fantasy. That is, it is not reality. It is not, it is not actually all the things which are going on around us at any given moment. It's not all of our bodily processes just repeated the way a camera is repeating what it sees. It's, it's an invention, right? So for me, if I'm imaginatively participating in a story about Nubia or Wonder Woman or whatever, uh, and if I'm then going off on my own tangents with it, then I'm changing my consciousness at that time. And I'm actually kind of changing my reality, not in a, you know, obviously it has no weight or carry for like, it's not changing the fact that I'm gonna die or that I have to drink this food or, or drink this drink or whatever. It's, it's but it's, it is working on my consciousness in a way, and therefore it is transforming my, my reality in however ephemeral or not lasting a fashion. Um, and that's what I think of it as being is not so much as an, an escape from reality, but a particular kind of engagement with it. Um, and that engagement to me is really interesting. And that's you know why I got the title of keeping it unreal, because I think there are uses to um, that engagement and invention using the stuff of reality or using popular culture or using whatever it is that you engage with um, to transform your consciousness and turn your attention to things that may not be what um, the anti-black or racist or misogynist or homophobic world wants you to turn your attention to. Um, and I wouldn't say that it's a it's never a complete escape. Uh, it's never 
without reference to all those forces, um, but it may be providing pockets for dealing with and for navigating and for um, going past the, the dictates of those forces. So uh, even if momentarily, so that's kind of the way that I think about it. That, yeah, that's, that's definitely, that put a lot of things into perspective. <laughs> um, and it, it made me think, well, yeah, keeping it unreal is kind of keeping it real, um, depending mm-hmm. on you, but you, you're really keeping it real. And um, yeah, and I, yeah, yeah, I'm sorry. I'm just kind of thinking in terms of, and sorry to bring this back to Black Panther, but it did something mm. when the, when the movie first came out in terms of, and I know I was kind of like thinking about it in the back of my head. Um, I would walk, so I'm from Senegal, and I would walk in D.C. and I didn't have a car, so I'd hop in the metro back when everything was normal. Um, and I had like my Senegalese headscarf if I didn't want to do my hair. Mm-hmm. And if that was the time that Black Panther also came out, so if someone saw me, they greeted me Wakanda style, and I was like mm-hmm. utterly. Like I understood, but it also caught me off guard. Um, mm-hmm. Fast forward to this moment, and you know, as you're explaining, I'm like, it shifted something in people's brains, right? And it kind of mm-hmm. made what was on screen their reality. They made it their reality. They included it into mm-hmm. their everydayness, um, mm-hmm. which is it's real for people. So mm-hmm. I agree. Some people don't like the movie, but I wouldn't. Because it's because of what you exactly just said, because people have incorporated this into their lives, um, Mm -hmm. that's not something, you know, to just walk up to someone like, well, it's not real. And, you know, I kind of Mm -hmm. let it happen. But it was like that moment where I was like, something just happened right now. (laughs) This person thought like this was a real greeting, a real moment. (laughs) This was real for them, you know, and. I'm looking at this person like, wow, this what happened in the movie actually just happened in real life right now. So it's um, yeah. it's it's really interesting. <laughs> That's fascinating. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I and I talk about this in the book. I mean, yeah, that there a huge amount of um, psychic and fantasy investment, you know, uh, readed or uh, resulted from the first movie, and I guess the, the sequel as well. Uh, in this idea of Wakanda as the, the black nation that was never colonized, that has all these, that becomes the most powerful nation on earth, all these sort of just diff- different framings of the representation of blackness that uh, certainly for American audiences, and I think beyond the U.S. too, had a, a powerful impact and continues to have uh, an impact. Uh, it's really, it's, it's both um, interesting and also kind of, I, I don't know what's the word I'm looking for, uh, mortifying that people would be greeting you with a Wakanda just because you're wearing Senegalese, you know, <laughs> Senegalese hand, uh, hand scarf. I mean, it just, you know, it doesn't really, it's, it's kind of crazy. Uh, but uh, it does show you a way, it's like people are just, I mean, I could just go and I, you know, during the, the year that the movie came, the first movie came out, and a couple of years later, I walk into the, the barbershop and just see these Wakanda Forever stickers or, placards or things around. And, you know, these are not people who, in the barbershop that, I, that I've ever heard them because they're always talking. I never heard them talking about comic books or anything like that. But, uh, you know, really it just, it touched a, a chord. And, you know, part of what I was thinking about the book is coming as somebody who had read a lot of Black Panther comics and knew a lot about the history of the character. Um, I was just thinking about all the ways in which engaging with that kind of representation can be um, transformative in some ways. I mean, not transforming like transforming the world and not transforming you in some, you know, all or nothing kind of way, but just ways that are worth thinking about and worth theorizing uh, and trying to uh, think through what they are, um, even though anyone can always say, but it's not reality. And yes, that's true, um, but it's also a much more complicated thing than it's just not reality. There are many more dimensions to it than than just that, that dismissal. And, you know, to bring it back to Fanon, because I I really like how you you tie your argument into Fanon theory, um, into Mm. this analysis of uh, fantasy genre. So 
I've read Fanon different ways. I haven't read him in in the fantasy genre yet, so I was like, "Oh, this is this is really cool." There's you know, Fanon ages differently. The more I read him, the more I'm like, I don't. I've read him ten years ago. I was like, "Oh," and then I read him like it. It he works very weird. <laughs> he works very weirdly. He fits in different spaces. He causes trouble. I'm like, wow, this mm-hmm. is uh, what a writer. <laughs> so can you mm-hmm. tell us how um, the, the black skin and white masks and how the his theorization of blackness and consciousness weaves into your project? Mm-hmm. Well, a couple of ways. So, I mean, one of them is just uh, bracket, kind of doing keeping an unreal with kind of two strains, right? So one of them is the kind of common sense thing, which is, we've been talking about, which is that fantasy is not reality. Fantasy is just an escape, you know, and fantasy is almost of no use in a certain way, unless it's utopian, where you're kind of thinking of how it could be in a really, uh, a better way, uh, like a plan for a reality in the future, uh, which, you know, I engage in, and I do find interesting that part of it. But the other way is the phenomenon way, which is to think about fantasy and its operation with uh, the structures of anti-Blackness. Uh, as we think about it these days, although that's not the word that he was using. Um, but, and that is that fantasy is a category that is made up of European colonizers and enslavers' fantasies about something which they call black, fantasies of things that threatened them or that concerned them or that they were fascinated by or that they wanted uh, from fantasies of disorder, chaos, dirt, you know, destruction things that you fear, monstrosity, uh, to fantasies of unlicensed, and this is particularly Fanon's interest in Black Skin, White Mask, uh, unlicensed sexuality, illicit sexuality. Um, all of those things become part of what Blackness is and what is imputed to, as we say, highly melanated bodies. Um, and it's a fantasy. It's a really pernicious, unjust, destructive, murderous fantasy. Uh, So it's a fantasy that gets materialized as actually doing awful things to black bodies um, and to black people and to continuing to do it and setting up whole systems that that engage it. Um, And so from that perspective, fantasy is really an enemy, right? Like uh, that is part of what you're wanting to do is get rid of the fantasy. Um, So from those two poles, like either it's meaningless or it's, you know, a terrible, um, uh, weapon, you know, uh, I was thinking, well, if I can, I can hold both of those possibilities and I can see what also lies between them. And that's, you know, how I was thinking in the book about blackness in relationship to fantasy, that it's neither, uh, completely something that is a weapon that belongs to the enemy and a weapon of anti-blackness. It's not completely that, although it, it is certainly in part for sure that, um, and nor is it something we just dismiss, right? So, um, and then what you find in Black Skin, White Masks is, you know, a lot of really interesting stuff happens, as you say, Fanon is a really interesting, kind of crazy writer, does a lot of different things, uh, makes trouble in a lot of ways, as you say, is provocative in all kinds of ways that I think are sometimes, you know, are just, we would think of as wrong, but they're also really useful, interesting places to start a discussion. Um, and he has a, a couple of different footnotes and even a little bit of main text um, where he's talking about comics, uh, where, you know, he talked about one of the ways in which a uh, Black Antillian, uh, and he's talking about boys here, um, are one of the ways in which they become alienated from their own Blackness and attached to a notion of themselves ideally as white is that they absorb these comic books, they absorb these uh, movies and things that mm-hmm. you know, have adventures like Tarzan, mm-hmm. where there's an identification with Tarzan as the story asks you to, to identify with, uh, and not with the savage, you know, black people who are around them or who sub- subordinate to him. Um, so he talks about that, and then he actually also um, references some some I guess we call it scholarship, some sort of popular scholarship about comics that was being circulated in the 1940s when um, uh, Black Skin White Mass was being written and that Sartre had translated from English um, where, um, 
writer was talking about how all the ways that comic books um, sort of create diseases of the mind, you know, for young people and uh, lead them towards juvenile behavior, uh, juvenile delinquency and encourage homosexuality and, you know, all kinds of things that evils that comics are supposedly engaged in. And Fanon um, references this work uh, and he uses it, you know, um, and I was just really interested in the fact that he thought of comics as doing something. Generally, he thought of them as doing something pernicious and awful. Um, but I was interested in, yes, okay, we've got that. I think we're, you're kind of going too far with it on a certain level. Um, but is, you're on to something where comics are doing something. They are, they are providing certain kinds of um, education, even, you know, as it were. Uh, and so... That was how, for me, you know, it's like Fanon is not, you know, he's not a theorist of comics, um, but he's the theorist I often turn to for anything, uh, even if I'm not following what he says, I'm just using it for the provocation or finding something interesting there. And, and interesting enough, he's, you know, got these footnotes about comics, just as he has footnotes about the mirror stage and Lacanian psychoanalysis. I mean, he just, there are footnotes that also do a lot of really interesting work. And so that's kind of how um, he ended up being in, in this book for me. Yeah, that's, um, I'm glad you were able, I really, I enjoyed, even if it's problematic, <laughs> when, you know, I see Fanon inserted into places where you wouldn't usually find him and how mm. transform the theory of, you know, as I have to remind myself, and I was told that you know, Fanon, this that was his that was his thesis dissertation, so um, mm -hmm. probably rushed, <laughs> probably you know, mm -hmm. it probably could have been fleshed out a little better, but mm -hmm. it's like the, he put in a statement that can be continued today and in the future. So, um, but it also yeah. tells us a, a lot about the times. <laughs> um, yes, for sure. And it's also just so many mix of so many genres that, you know, it's like Souls of Black Folk in that way. And so you've got all kinds of different mm. ways of looking at, but that's partly because there's so many dimensions of blackness and racism and all those things. And, you know, with the psychoanalytic, uh, uh, psychiatric, that is to say, training that he had, um, he could see there are all kinds of ways I need to kind of write about this. And, mm -hmm. and then it also has that kind of quality that I, I think I recognize as a writer where the first thing you write, you almost feel like you got to put everything in it. Just, you know, you almost don't, you don't know if you'll ever be able to do it again. So like every single thing you could possibly think needs to somehow be there. Uh, and that kind of is the way that he's, that, that book is constructed. Yeah. So another thing you talk about is um, paranoia. You start off the, the conversation with paranoia and I enjoy that. Um, but really how paranoia can be used as a form of navigating text. So in, mm -hmm. in this case of the comic strip, so can you speak to the argument that you make, um, and you use the example of Black Panther, um, but of course mm -hmm. anything else you would want to add, but how do the superhero comics queer the history that produces Blackness? Mm -hmm. Well, so the paranoid reading thing is something that I'm just taking from Eve Kosofsky Sedgwick, who wrote about many years ago, um, wrote about the, you know, from a sort of feminist and queer theorist perspective about ways of engaging and reading text. This is, you know, an English literature professor. Um, and there were these two ways she was kind of delineating. One was the paranoid way, which is basically where you expect to see that whatever you're reading um, is going to in some way reinforce and um, recapitulate the uh, dictates of any particular kind of hegemony, like so, you know, racist, misogynist, heteropatriarchal, all, all those things uh, would be, you're always going to see them. And the, and they are always there. So there's there's quite there's you know there's good reason to be paranoid in that sense. Um, there's the paranoid reading, and then there's the reparative where you recognize the operation of those forces and those structures for representation or discourse, but you're also looking to see the ways in which the um, the text uh, does something that breaks open a little piece or 
um, makes different possibilities available, uh, conjures you know something that isn't just a repetition of the the hegemonic structure and whatever whichever hegemony you're choosing. Um, I'm definitely looking at comics in a more reparative way, but at the same time, I definitely want to take account of, but there's a paranoid way that I, I also engage in at the very same time, right? And like I said about Nubia, there she is in a leopard skin skirt in that first issue on the cover. Uh, and she doesn't appear in that leopard skin skirt anywhere else. And there's actually good reason why she wouldn't, because there's no reason why she should be wearing one, actually. Um, but just the kind of spectacularization of her blackness that's highly problematic. And so the, parano the paranoia, one's paranoia, you should be alert to that. At the same time, I was really interested in it and I was drawn to it. Uh, I was drawn to that particular spectacularization. And so it's um, it's not one dimensional. It's not just the paranoid. And so I was just thinking about all these characters in the same way where Black Panther, there are all kinds of, um, there are also all kinds of things that the creators of Black Panther, uh, Jack Kirby primarily, I want to say the artist and Stan Lee, the writer, um, there are all kinds of things they weren't really thinking through. Uh, mm -hmm. There are all kinds of racist assumptions which are embedded in their creative process because mm -hmm. Jack Kirby, who's an artist, by the way, who I love his work, uh, but he's been, he's been working for it since the 1940s and he could draw and created characters like Whitewash Jones, who was this just total minstrel character uh, who mm -hmm. appeared in early um, Captain America, Bucky comics um, uh, called The Young Allies. And so uh, Look at the ways at the the ways in which racism and anti-blackness shape the construction even of a character like Black Panther, right? Uh, so there are, but then you have later creators, and this is one of the things about superhero comics. They have all this. There are so many different creators that come along, and they always do retroactive, you know, um, retellings of the origin stories, or they just change it up in various ways. Later writers, like Reginald Hudlin, the uh, filmmaker, who really imbue the character with a perspective of somebody who is African-American, but also um, who is thinking more about like, how could Wakanda exist given the, the history of Africa and it's being uh, divvied up by the, the European powers and colonized and people being enslaved and all this, like how could Wakanda have been what it was? And he's been reimagining the history in ways that Stanley and Jack Kirby didn't really think about other than to say, oh, we're gonna, pull the, you know, we're going to pull the rug out from under you by having this African country be not primitive, but actually technologically advanced. Ha! You know, like that's the, that's the kind of, that's the level at which I think their creation is set up. Uh, but then Reginald Hudlin and others and Ta-Nehisi Coates, you know, uh, and before them, Don McGregor, others are, you know, are doing very different things with it. So, uh, so for me, it's like no encounter with, for, for one thing, there the superhero is paradigmatically white, um, although of course superhero characters are characters; they actually have no race as such. But they're they're you know, the par the paradigm is set up as that these are white figures; they're representing white people, white you know white men uh, and a white woman, Wonder Woman, and, and a few other women. Um, and uh, their their whiteness is kind of important to how they're conceived and how they're conceived as being potentially powerful. So then when you have black characters, they're a minority um, and they're they're always doing something different uh, and the, their having power is always a problem for the white supremacist imagination that underlies the superhero comic, superhero genre, period. So it's always something that has to be worked with and gets worked with with the names, like you gotta call them Black Panther, uh, there'd be like black green, the black Green Lantern, Nubia, you know, referring to like it's like Nubia has the name in it the, of, mm -hmm. of some reference to Africa. Um, so there's always that kind of stuff. But the, the, the paranoid reading, um, you need that in order to understand the context in which these characters emerge, even as there's more of a kind of reparative imagination you as a reader can use in engaging with them, and that other later writers and artists can use to um if not fully break free at least revise and uh change and open up to some degree the the white supremacist imagination that that underlies it and the, the paranoia reading is something that can work well it it is used and works 
across different genres. So it's, yeah. it's really, you know, interesting to see how you put it into this of, okay, well, when you're facing a comic strip, how do you go about it? And I think another thing I was just thinking about was I reading your book made me realize I wish more professors included <laughs> comic strips into, you know, the curriculum. And I, I don't know, maybe mm. it's they're, they're shy, they're, or they don't believe they know enough, but I can think of an, you know, numerous classes where we go over Fanon and I'm like, oh, it'd be really nice to kind of like see, well, how does Fanon translate into here or like reading Paranoia, mm. but how does Paranoia trans? Because there's still an underweaving thread where the 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 theme is still the same. So what would you say mm. to scholars, professors, um, or anyone who wants to include comic scholarship into their classroom but do not know where to start? Well, number one, I would start with this book. Um, but what else do you, <laughs> would you recommend and suggest? <laughs> uh, well, thank you. I appreciate that plug. Um, yeah, where would you start? Well, I think start... Um, some reference to the kind of structural aspects of reading comics. So that, that always goes back to these days anyway, uh, Scott McCloud, who is a cartoonist who wrote about, um, I'm so bad with titles. I think it was understanding comics or reading comics um, where he talks about the, the structure of the panels and the gutters between the panels that they're called the, the white space between them that separates them and the ways that you connect them. Uh, and that's like that, that's to me just a really fundamental aspect of how anybody approaches both just reading comics and trying to um, write about them or think about them uh, in a scholarly way. It's like you just need to have a, a grasp of that structure and its various implications. Um, and um, and then there's there's a whole wealth of comic scholarship that one could you know go to. Um, so and I because my brain often <laughs> loses names. I, I'm seeing books in my mind. Can't <laughs> think of the title, can't think of the author. <laughs> there, are plenty, there are plenty of things you can look at there, but I think you start with that structural stuff. And then it's kind of a question of, there's also a wealth of different kinds of comics from superheroes to, like I was talking about Love and Rockets, which is not a superhero comic pretty much at mm -hmm. all, although it sometimes has a little superhero story in it, which is, you know, it's kind of a, it's a, a drama and it's, fantasy and it's all kinds of different things um but you can look at the you choose a series or two or a mini series that opens up things for you as a reader um and there's mm -hmm. so many i think that that just provide all kinds of um possibilities and then you know i actually taught a course that was it was not co-taught but my uh colleague ramsey fawaz was teaching a version of the same course at the university of uh, wisconsin-madison um that was all about queer studies in comics um where we, we looked at a range of things and you know part of it is historical like we would need to look at wonder woman because there's a lot a big queer element of the original wonder woman in the 1940s uh other things um are much more contemporary so you can have that kind of historical perspective on comics and it's it, in many ways it's a huge it's a huge area and comic studies has been growing for the last 20 years if not more uh, more and more and so more and more people are focused on it um and it's it's a challenge in some ways to to put it into put a comic you know into a course uh that isn't focused on comics mm -hmm. um yeah. it's because it's a different form you know it's a different it's not just a different genre it's a different form uh than literature or film which are probably the things you're probably looking at or scholarship if those are the things my students tell me these days that in their english I'm in African American studies, but they're you know English and complete uh, classes. They never actually read any literature anymore. Uh, but I, it, whatever it is, like the, the comic is still going to be something that's quite different, you know, than mm -hmm. those things. So uh, even though it's conversant with them, so it's a challenge. But I, I would definitely encourage people to look at them, and and I think a lot. I at least I know just anecdotally a lot of people who you know whose interest in their writing is about. Uh, not comics, but they know about comics still, and they they read them. So, um, it I think it's always it's it's a rich area for scholarly consideration. Yeah, definitely think so. And 
So we always ask this question in terms of mm-hmm. while you were writing this book, <laughs> did you have a specific um, audience or a reader in mind to a sort of imagined mm-hmm. reader? Uh, did you, mm-hmm. or was it kind of, you wrote this book because, you know, you were like, well, this is on my brain, kind of need to get mm-hmm. it out. But did you have an imagined mm-hmm. reader if someone was reading this by the beach or by the fireplace? Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, I definitely think for me, this was, it's like some, this particular book is something that's been building for a long time. Um, as I said, you know, from when I was a child, and even when I was, a graduate student and I wasn't doing it or wasn't focused on thinking about comics in most of my early career and uh, early writing. So um, it was kind of on my brain. So it was, it was that for me. I did feel like I wanted as much as possible, and I don't think it's always fully possible, but as much as possible, I wanted to be writing in a voice that is um, more, ab- I mean, I, I think we all have a range of voices. I think my first book is Scrapping Objection, which is, you know, these looking at African-American literature in these psychoanalytically informed ways, and it's a very theoretical. Um, there's a particular voice that is mine, but I wanted something that was going to be more accessible, but I wasn't necessarily thinking about a particular audience. It's just, it was almost as if I was thinking, if I were talking about all these things and talking to my students, and with students, especially undergrads, you can't just like, say, okay, so discourse, Lacan, and they've got to know what, you, know what you're talking about. You're going to have to explain it in a way that they can break it down into component parts and get what you're talking about without the word or the buzzword or the, the dense theoretical term um, that does the work for you otherwise with more, with more specialized audiences. So I was thinking, you know, a little more general um, and trying to be more explanatory the way I would be in a classroom with undergrads. Uh, I don't know that I was really thinking undergrads is my you know, audience, but I was thinking this is the kind of address I would have for in an undergrad class, uh, which I'm really comfortable with and I think is maybe closer to my, my uh, central voice amongst my many voices than others. Um, so that was kind of how I was thinking about it. Yeah. Well, I, I really like the voice and it's um, a professor. Well, yeah, it was actually Dr. Drabinsky who mentioned if you have a hard time writing, go back to writers or books that you enjoyed reading. And I think this is going to be on the list of, oh, I really enjoyed the voice and the flow, and maybe that could unblock my writer's book. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I definitely enjoyed it. And that's, I think that's kind of a challenge as a graduate student. For me, at least yeah. I'll say, you want to talk about Lacan. Like, I will really want to talk to my brother about Fanon, right? But how do you talk mm-hmm. about Fanon without using the jargon mm-hmm. and saying psycho and, like, you know, it's... Um, mm-hmm. So I think your book is yeah. a really good example on how to do so. <laughs> well, I'm glad you feel that way. Thank you. And to return that question to you, how do you walk away from this book? Um, I was told the process of writing and editing and refining really takes a toll, but it, you know, kind mm-hmm. of changes you by the end. So where does this mm-hmm. book leave you? I think that's, uh, the answer is yet to be determined. Uh, I was writing this, I started writing it before the pandemic, but I really wrote it and finished it during the pandemic. So during the shutdown, then we were all basically confined to our homes more or less and not going into work and not having classes except virtually and all that sort of stuff. Um, and at the same time, uh, my family was going through a really difficult health crisis because my mother had a, uh, a, a brain disease that was undiagnosed uh, for about a year before we figured out what it was. So it was a really tough time. So for me, writing about comics and keeping it unreal was partly kind of charting a way that my own consciousness can um, be freed from or move differently other than just reacting to all the awful stuff uh, that's going on. Um, and as I, you know, turning, using somebody else's idea about the, called it the attention economy or something, but turning my attention to things of not just my creation, but co-creations with other, with artists and, and art and, and 
thinkers that does something for me that enlivens me as opposed to uh, deadens and drains me. Um, so that was kind of what was going on for me. And I always find that when I write some a book, a book length project as opposed to an article, whether it's fiction or nonfiction, once I'm done with it, it has done something. It has transformed something about how I think about whatever that was about. Mm. Um, and um, and then I kind of don't need to go back to it. <laughs> it's like there's a sort of, you know, there's a way where, uh, I mean, not that our thinking doesn't change over time about a particular subject, and it does. It's just that, uh, I don't know, it kind of, there's a, there's a weight that's lifted or something, mm. something gets... The, whatever energy in, that was invested in the problems that the either the fiction or the nonfiction is engaged with, that energy is less tangled up mm-hmm. by the time that the, the the book is finished and it's gone through all those processes that you mentioned, which are draining, but they're also um, I don't know, they just they, they lift the weight, I think, somehow. So. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much for uh, making the time to come on. This was really interesting and much needed conversation in terms of breaking down comics and <laughs> it's it's either i feel like it's always two extremes it's either they're going like way into theory and it's like all about mm. you know white european colonialism mm. um yeah it's and you, that's honestly that was my my initial take not with your book but with the comic genre in general and i was like i don't think that's for me but now i'm kind of opening asking the questions why do I not think it's for me and I think books like this really does help break it down so thank you very much (laughs) you're welcome thank you great to talk to you